Talk with me, please. Say fighting, fighting. Bedroom, blindness. bedroom blindness. This is a study about what the Bible says about your sex life, and it's really going to make you, oh, you're going to be okay. Trust me, I know it's not normal in church, but you, you'll survive this month. This is the whole month, so, you know, you chose a month to come, it's good. Uh, the study uh, of bedroom blindness is really what I believe to be uh, an explanation of when people get it wrong. When their intimate approach to life sexually is, is not in line with what the Bible says. And I believe there's a blindness in that. And a lot of us have been blinded by it. I was not raised in a culture where I was ever told that there was anything wrong with anything other than bringing babies home. That was all I was told. So I didn't really have a right perspective. And let me make the parents calm and help you out. This is not going to be even PG-13. This is PG-1. It's not R-rated. It's not PG-13. It's PG-1. What did I say it was? PG-1. Now, I'm going to say more than, I'm going to say things, but it's not more than they hear at school. And so I, my goal is to give you at least um, a place to jump in. Today, we deal with one question uh, that I think you'll find fascinating. The question is, how can leaders become bedroom blind? How is it possible that you can be a pastor? How can you be a leader of a, of a business? But let's, let's just talk about those leaders you know that you've seen, and you said, man, he's got an issue. He's, he's flirting with everybody, and it's not just him many times, it's her. It's, it's just what is it that creates this bedroom blind culture where you see the bedroom in a blind way and not in a blessed way? I believe that God meant for it to be a blessing, but for a lot of people, it's a point of blindness. There's a verse in Luke chapter 12, I want to start with verse 48, and it's in your notes at the top of the page, and it really kind of sets the tone for for how I want you to see this, because there's a, str a strong statement that's made here that can really be a help to you. Here's what it says. Everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be what? Required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. There is a requirement to lead, that, that's placed on leaders, and it's fair. I'm the pastor of this church. It is fair. It is absolutely fair for me to be held to a high standard. It's absolutely fair if you're a father of a family that you are held to a higher standard. There's nothing wrong. You're the leader. You're the one who sets the tone. And you can set a lustful tone, a tone that says there's no boundaries, a tone that says I'll, I'll look at anybody, lust at anybody, want anybody, get anybody if I can. You can set that tone, but understand as you will go through the sermon, you'll see, especially on next week, it rolls down to your family. It rolls downhill. It becomes a part of how you think as a family. And what's really tragic is, in many cases, it says you cannot be trusted. I want you to hear that. It says you cannot be trusted. Anybody and everybody is a potential candidate for you because as long as they look good to you and appealing to you and they satisfy an appetite you have, they are a candidate. And if they're willing, you're willing. And if that's how you live your life, that means you don't have boundaries at work or anywhere. That's how you see it happen. You see it in the office, you see it, you see it in schools, you see it with school teachers and students, you see it with principals and secretaries, you see it all over the place, and you're thinking to yourself, are there any boundaries? You have to ask yourself, am I the kind of person who has lost sight of those kind of boundaries? It doesn't really matter to me. I am now bedroom blind. I am controlled by my blindness. And I want to be really clear, it's not just men. Many women, in their, in their desire to find love and their need to be a whole person, they have basically thrown away all boundaries. It could be your friends, 
um, husband or wife. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. There are no boundaries. None at all. Even within the context of family, which we'll see next week. And it starts with someone. You may, you may think it's innocent, but it's really not. And I talked about this last week. It's, it's not just, um, it's, it's digital stuff. It's printed stuff. It's everywhere. And I want to be really clear. I grew up in an environment where that was not wrong. I am a candidate for bedroom blindness at the top of the charts because I was never told it was wrong. As a kid, I was just told, I'm bringing the babies home. That's all I was told. And so that's it. Now, what did that mean to me as a kid? I didn't really know because I didn't fully understand everything that was involved. But what, one thing that's true is I, I did not have enough conversation. And even as a Christian, I never heard a sermon on this until I was 19. And I'd been saved since I was 14. I'd never heard one sermon. It, in the crucial years of my life, when I needed someone to be honest with me and explain not only how I feel, but what was going on. And a lot of men, in particular, are very uninformed about their sexuality. They don't fully understand how things work. They just kind of know what they feel. But that doesn't explain where you are. And, and parents are not good at educating their kids. We really worked hard at trying to, at, at an early age, we, there were books, a series of books, which we're going to look at putting back in our bookstore, where, where you, we taught them, I think they were like six, real young, and it, it had, it, it had um, sex education at various ages. And it gave them enough so that they could digest it and understand. I wanted them to know from me. I didn't want them to hear it in the street from somebody who's trying to take advantage of them. I'd rather me tell you. I'd rather you have the freedom to ask me, listen to me, any question you have the courage to ask. Any, and let me tell you, they'll ask you. I'm not going to repeat the questions that my daughter has asked me, but there were some times I said, okie dokie. And you can't, as a dad, don't say, go ask your mama. No, answer, answer the question. Answer the question. There's something about you being involved. And let me just say this to men. You, I don't know why you think your sexual attitudes or your bedroom blindness does not impact them. They notice it. Your little kids notice it. One of the most powerful things I ever heard said, ever heard said about, about this was when I was a freshman in college and I studied theology in one of our classes was on youth ministry, you know, how kids are impacted by, uh, by you. And, and one of the instructors made a comment that I just never forgot. He said, he said, she will try to be the kind of woman you like, your daughter will try to be. The way that you, you look at women, the way that you interact will impact her desires. Oh, that's how you're supposed to be. That's what daddy likes. There's something that can happen in a person that you have a strong part in shaping, an attitude. And I think because we don't talk about it and we don't adjust it, we think, well, whatever you feel is what you should be. I don't know if that's true. We don't apply that reasoning anywhere else. We draw strong lines on behavior. Some kids come out with a bully spirit and you adjust it. You don't do that. There are people who are curious about things and that's okay. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with it. That's why non-Christian people sometimes get sick of church people, because you just can't talk about stuff. And then you just act like you don't know what's going on. And you know a lot of this going on. Hello. Come on, am I right about that? You know a lot that's going on, but, but because you can't talk about it, and you can't have this honest moment, and you're not even having an honest moment with yourself. Let me ask you, are you out of control? Are you a person who's out of control. I'm going to show you somebody in a moment here who's out of control. 
And, and I want to show you that this leader who gets out of control, his name is David, is out of control, and, and, and I don't think he faced it. I think he ran from it. I think he avoided it. I think he got into this place where it was like, well, you know, um, I don't want to talk about that. And, and what happened was his blindness went way past him. Let me show you the story. You'll find it fascinating. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, there is um, an incredibly open, transparent story that is recorded about David, who's one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. And what's really powerful is, when you look at David's life, you ask the question, you say, how could a leader like David become bitter and blind? Because you have to separate position from problem. Can you say that with me, please? Come on. It's position, problem. Say it again. Come on. Position, problems. There's two separate issues. You can be an incredible, incredible person who climbs to the top of an incredible position, but you have still not faced certain problems in your life, certain habits you've developed. And so that's how you can see people rise in great power, become incredibly, profoundly dynamic, but then they lose the ability to balance. And there are three indicators that he was headed, in, headed to trouble in chapter 11. And I want you to say all three with me, please. Come on, say his priorities, his, priorities. his, placement, his placement, his pursuits. In chapter 11, verse 1, it said, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time that the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him. Notice his priorities have been interrupted now. He is not going to battle with the kings. It was a time of year when the kings would go to battle. He didn't go. He took some days off. He shouldn't have taken. And now he's just laying around, lounging around. And the other guys are out fighting, but he stayed in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice, because of his priorities being off, he's in the wrong place. This is important. He's in the wrong place. Verse 2 says, it happened on one evening that David arose from his bed, so he's sleeping in late, okay? And he walked on the roof of the king's house. Now, I want you to please freeze right there for a minute. He wasn't supposed to be here. If you are in the wrong place, you will do the wrong things. If you go to certain places, please think for a second, where are the places I should not go? If I had not gone over there, if I, and you need to just identify those places. There's some addresses. There's some phone numbers you need to delete. There are some things you should never, ever do. You can't go over. If I go over, I, t I told you last week, right? If you do one and two, three will happen. Come on, say one, two, three. One, two, three. That's it. If you do one, okay, you answer the phone. Number two, you went over there. There it is. Three is there. That's it. I mean, you know when you saw the phone. Oh, man. I just heard this sermon on bedroom blindness. I don't need to answer that one. Diddly. Nope, Jesus. If I answer that phone, that's one. And I hear his voice, that's two. <laughs> or her voice. I mean, some of you know. I had a guy, he was, it was amazing. He, was, he, he came by my house one day, and he was so honest. He was so honest. And he came, and he said, oh! <laughs> and he used, to, he used to come by my house, and, and, and his, his feet would smell so bad. Oh, Jesus. And he'd kick his shoes off. I'm serious. It was, it was awful. He said, you put your shoes on, man. No. He says, No! And then he'd come over, and he'd kick his shoes off. Temple, I know they smell bad, but I need to talk to somebody. I need to talk to somebody. And he would be all dramatic. And I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying. Oh. 
I'm praying and everything, but she called me. He said, and he never told me her name. He said, I just call her Egypt. <laughs> he, said, he said, she's so fine. It was all dramatic. He said, I just tried to call Jesus. Help me, Jesus. But here's what I said. See, one, two, three. Come on, say it again. Come on. One, two, three. You just have to be honest. This is Egypt for me. I will always choose you above what's best for me. And there's something about admitting that. There's something about you and the secret sauce you got rolling that just makes me blind. I can't see a thing. And you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you ladies, just a guy you like, you find until he show up and you can't, you start wiggling and, and, and moving and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. No, I'm serving, I'm, I'm serving um, Jesus now. I'm serving Jesus. Jesus, I'm serving him. You want to go out? No, yes. <laughs> One, two, where should I go? I know if I go. And then it's just that honest moment when you admit I am, I am in a place that I just cannot see because somehow for whatever reason, and you got to be really clear. Let me help you with this. This is not love. This is chemistry. This is all, this is all emotion. This is, this is body training. This is neuroplasticity. You know what I tell you about that? Neuroplasticity, your brain gets trained. When you're with that person, you're like this. Everybody else is straight. But your brain, when they see them, they think one, two, three, because that's what it's been. You literally, and this is what's really important to understand how you're wired. Haven't you noticed that when you... you um, I don't want to use a terrible example, but it really drives on the point. But let me try a graceful one. When, when you get near food, you get hungry. You, you smell it. And you start. How many times have you? How many times have you driven by the Krispy Kreme donut sign, right? And they got that big red hot sign, and your car takes over and drives over there. You ever did that? That's why they put the sign out. That's the, they, they they train your brain. And let me tell you. Here, and it's really biologically true. The sugar is a trigger. And it literally biologically calls you. But, you know, they say sugar can be, as, in terms of the brain, it lights up the same parts of the brain that the cocaine does. It, it, if you, you just have to, sugar, sugar, sugar. So you see, you see the hot sign, right? And the hot sign, the hot sign says, come, sugar and you go get the sugar. And you don't get one, you get a dozen. I need a dozen, two dozen, it's on sale, you know? And you sit there, and you eat it until you're sick. You ever notice that? You, you eat it, I just, I just, man, this is the devil. I had to, whoo, Jesus, that stuff was killing me. And you see all the results of it and everything, and you still eat, I can't, I know, I know, I know. After, the, after this last box right here, this is the last one. The same thing happens with bedroom blindness. You, you literally program yourself, and, and, and they, they make songs about it. You know, Jungle Fever, you know, you know, you know all, that, all that's about, yeah, amen. Uh, all the, those songs trigger something. It does, it just triggers something, you know. And, 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 and the music and the beat, and you, 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 tie, you start tying these images together, and it really is amazing how it makes you feel. 
It is. Can I, can I just, I want to drop this, I'm going to jump on something else real quick for a second. There's, there's, the other morning I got up, you know, just to be transparent, I got up, and I, I wanted to play some, I, want, I didn't want to play any gospel. I didn't want to play any gospel. I want to play some love songs. Yeah, I did. I did. And, you know, and, and Christina was in the kitchen, and, 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 and she was over, and, and so I, um, I, I put on me some love songs, and I, I was cooking breakfast, but I wanted, I turned it up. I want to die and hear it. <laughs> Some of you say, were you bedroom blind that morning? <laughs> no, I, would, I think there's a healthy, blessed part of being in love and being romantic. I mean, I don't know on your wedding day do you want to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I don't think that's the, we don't want to be that way. I'm not talking about having healthy, vibrant, loving uh, passion for someone. I'm not talking about outlawing all of that. I think the church has made a mistake trying to outlaw it. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I'm really in love. I'm passionate about this person. I, I think there's something fantastic about holding somebody's hands and feeling great. And there's something wonderful about being in love. But understanding what love is and understanding what love is not. And not letting bedroom blindness define for me something that's not true and drag me off into a, a direction that's not healthy for me long term. And that ends up rolling down to my family and creating something that's not good. For David, his placement triggered all this. He was in the wrong place. Verse 2 again, it happened. One evening, David rose from his bed, walked on the roof of a king's house. And from the roof, verse 2 says at first, 2 Samuel 11, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, please understand, this is not her fault. This is not her fault. Can you say that with me, please? Come on. This is not her fault. This is a person who is in what I call an embarrassing moment. There are embarrassing moments in life. Moments when it just doesn't, you can't, you can't avoid it. You know, in L.A., there's, um, uh, uh, it's very common for you to have a, a pool bath off the pool you'll have a bathroom and the story that I heard years ago was really touched me uh, the young girl was um, showering or something in the bathroom and, and, and the uncle walked by and the door was ajar and sometimes you're not paying attention to something being open and he saw her and instead of doing this closing this excuse me babe your door's open here instead of doing that he looked in and he said nice that's all it took was that so all he said was those words, it's not nice. Nice what, huh? What do you mean, nice? What does, that, what does that say to me? And from that moment on, it triggered something in her, a fear and insecurity. It, it, and, and somehow it, it's an amazing lack of sensitivity. David, when he walked up on that roof and he saw this woman who did not know he was looking, who thought she was in a private moment, which is normal in family. You live with folks, this happens. Instead of saying, oh, man, I'm sorry, oh, let me just tell, let her know that that's probably not a good place to bathe. Instead of doing that, he takes another step. I told a story earlier, and I thought it would be great to rehearse it here. I was, um, when we first got married, uh, I lived with Diane's mom. Um, our church didn't have much money, and so for the first six months, I stayed until I could find an apartment. I moved from Charlotte here, and I went from L.A. to Charlotte and Charlotte here and after I graduated from college. And, uh, def I, and so I was staying with Diane for about, mom, for about six months, and you know, I paid my way, okay, I did my part, all right? But 
But I remember my niece, Aisha, who is uh, at times around five years old, uh, she's always um, been fascinated with following me around and, and, and bothering me. Um, <laughs> in, in a good way. I mean, in a good way. But she was so smart. And I mean, just really smart person. And so she would, you know, because we were staying in Diane's room, so that's her, she and Diane would like ace tight, you know. So they would, so she'd just barge in. She'd always just come in because it's Diane, right? Well, no, Diane got a husband now. You can't just, you know, you got to knock, sister girl. So she, <laughs> you know, when you're five, you knock sometimes. So, so this is one of those times she, she just kind of barged in. And I was getting dressed, and I had, my, I had only, uh, my shirt was off, and I, I was completely, uh, uh, no shirt, no T-shirt, nothing, just the top. And she walks in, and she says these words, Oh, he's naked, he's naked, he's naked. <laughs> and, and then she runs around the house telling everybody she saw me naked. I am through. I am like, you five-year-old munchkin, I am not naked. You just stop saying I'm naked. And I'm trying to get dressed now. I'm not naked, okay, people? And she's running around, and then she, so she says, oh, well, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. She was so smart. He wasn't naked, naked. <laughs> just like from here up, you know. <laughs> I came out of the room, I said, you know what? Me and you, me and you, five-year-old person. There are moments you can't hide those experiences. That's family. Can you say that with him? Please come on. Say, that's family. That's family. That's, that's living in the world. That's working in a hospital. That's dealing with issues. That's helping people through crisis. But being mature in that moment is what David was not. But notice it all happened because he was in the wrong place. Thirdly, notice his, his pursuits. Once he sees this, he asked an unnecessary question. Now, he had his own wives and concubines, but he's asking about this woman. So David sent in verse 3 and inquired about the woman, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, and someone. Now, it doesn't name the person. This is a hero. Whoever this person is, they were trying to say something to David that he did not hear. Someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife? of Uriah the Hittite. The guy said, you know, listen, uh, David, you want to know who that is? You want to know who that is? That's Eliam's daughter. You know who Eliam is, David? He's one of your 30 top special forces guys. He's one of your mighty men. That's who Eliam was. It's somebody you know. That's Uriah's wife. You know, your soldier that's fighting for you right now while you're laying in the bed? That's Uriah's wife. And there's not another name that's mentioned here, but the name Ahithophel, who was the, who was the Ahithophel was the father of Eliam, which made Bathsheba his granddaughter. When he said the name Eliam, it should have rang a bell, and David should have said, oh, oh, fine. He knew these people. Violations are not always with people that don't know you. Whoever this guy is, he sees something coming down the train. He sees a blindness, and he's trying to get David's attention. He's trying to ring all the bells he can, and he's trying to warn him. But here's the key. David's not listening to anybody. He's his own man. He's king. does what he wants to do. So he calls for her, brings her in. She gets pregnant, and then he tries to hide it. It's amazing. Oh, boy. Seven 
signs, seven things his blindness caused him to ignore. Seven things he ignored. Number one, she never meant to tempt him. It's not her fault. Number two, she was the daughter of Eliam. And I gave you the verses there for you to look up. 2 Samuel 23, you can see it, verse 34. She may have been the granddaughter of Ahithophel. I said may have been because some think that it was another Ahithophel, but I don't believe that. I just showed respect and said some say. But I believe in them because the context, it is the daughter. They're all one family. And if you read Ahithophel's life, he resists David. He turns against David. He becomes an arch enemy of David. And it's all we believe linked to this event. Imagine it's your granddaughter for a minute. She's the wife of a faithful soldier, Uriah. In chapter 11, verse 14, it describes how, <laughs> how David, David tries to get the guy to come home so that he can cover his tracks. And the guy says, he's, he calls the guy in. He says, how's the war going? And the guy says, oh, it's going, going, you know, going good. And he says, hey, you know, won't you uh, go home and be with your wife tonight? And, and the guy says, no. He says, my soldiers are in this field. I'm not going to be with my wife while my soldiers are in the field. This is a real soldier. And so instead of him doing what David said, he sleeps at David's doorstep that day. I'll just stay here and protect you. Oh, boy. Talk about betrayal. Amazing. Then David writes a note. It gets worse. David writes a note to his commander. So I want you to kill this guy. And uh, he gives the note to Uriah to take to his commander. The guy doesn't open it. He gets the note. His commander gets it, looks at it, looks at him. And then he orders the guys in a battle to do something that was really dumb, get close to the wall. They were taking a city, and he told them to get close to the wall. Here's why he told them that. He knew that was a strategically wrong thing to do because the archers could just shoot them. So he let close to 30 guys die. Catch this now. Try getting close to the wall just to kill Uriah. David hears about this battle and complains, what in the world are you doing? Why did you let him get so close to the wall? He said, just tell David, Uriah is dead. And David will understand why we did it. So not only did Uriah die, but the other guys died. It's horrible. And then David waits, catch this now, he waits, and then he marries her. Boy, when you're blind, you think you can cover your tracks. But please, for a minute, let's not think about David because we tend to always do that. Please notice what I wrote for you under number five in your notes. She was vulnerable and powerless. David had all the power and advantage. And then, number six, she was forced to live a life that was unfair to her. So not only did you have to go marry the guy who, who killed your husband, he, just, he, just, he, just, he has all the power. I just want to say this is a sidebar, just as a note. You know, one of the things I've noticed in my, in, my, in my tour of prisons, as I preach in prisons, I've noticed um, a large percentage of guys are in there, and women, not just guys, but a lot of guys, and more guys than women, are in there for some kind of sexual assault of some kind. And what's interesting to me is a lot of them are in there for underage uh, relationships, quite a few. And part of the reason they made these laws is because they believe that you are not at an, you don't have the ability to make the choices you're making. You don't realize how much of a disadvantage you're at. You're at a disadvantage and don't know it. Some of you know when you date people, you have the power and the advantage. 
You can say what you want. Some guys are just too, too young to even understand dating you. He doesn't fully understand. He doesn't, have the, he doesn't have enough time on the clock to really get the picture. He may look like a man, sound like a man, but he doesn't have enough time. His mama looks at you and says, come on, girl. Listen to him talk. Sometimes in life, you have to realize you're taking advantage. You're using your, your gifting, your, 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 your natural gifting that God gave you. And you're using it on someone who cannot compete with you. Are you the kind of person who only wants somebody that you can be, be over, dominate, control? You want to want a relationship. You don't want a relationship where it's equal. And I'm not saying that age is the only thing that makes it equal. I'm not trying to say that. I want you to just see this is not just about age. This is just about power and advantage. And he took advantage. Are you doing that? Are you in a relationship and you are doing that? You're using your power, your money, your experience, your maturity, your status, your car, your stuff, your house. David doesn't really care. He only wants the power. And so what happens? He does something that's even more devastating beyond that is number seven on your list. He devastated the confidence of some of his closest leaders. Eliam, when he heard this, imagine what he felt. He did what? He did what? And then, you know, the soldiers talk. Yeah, David, David had all those guys killed, too, just to kill the coverage tracks. You've you got to understand, this is, this is a betrayal that's way beneath the surface. This is deep. I gave you the research material. You can look it up yourself there for Eliam and the verses and all this attached to it. But I want you to, to look past that, and I want you to notice with me a question that I gave you. The question is simply, how old was David when he had this relationship with Bathsheba? The age is important because I want you to notice at certain ages, you, you fall into certain traps. And that's what, and one of you ask the question, how is it that a leader can make this mistake? I'm, a, I'm 57. It, I don't escape being 57 and what that means. David's in his 40s, some estimate, at this time. And, I mean, his position and his, it didn't, he still had problems. Sometimes, well, let me say it another way. A friend of mine said something to me one time. It's one of the smartest things this church ever did for me in my early ministry. They hired somebody to come talk to me once a quarter. I do this with other leaders now, and I'm telling you it's one of the greatest things that I, I do. Um, but this church for a season, we, a guy came down, and he, and he was just a, a professional church guy, professional leadership guy. And for about a year or two, he came in, he would... He would um, just talk to me. He spent a whole day with me, sometime with the staff. And one of the things he said to me that I will never forget during that season, he said, he said, Rick, some things that are happening in your life have nothing to do with anything other than your age. He said, you're in your mid-30s, and he said, they're just things you're facing because of your age. It's 32, he said. It's 32, sir. At 32, you're, you're wondering and you're feeling, did I do enough? Did I accomplish enough? At 40, you have a certain set of feelings. Am I still vibrant? At 50, you know, you be, at, eight, at 60, am I, am I dying? Am I too old now? Am I getting ready to go to the pastor? You know, at 70, you know, people keep thinking you're done. At 80, at every age, there is a challenge. And so at this age, he's now lost his way. And he ends up in a place that's sad. 40-year-old successful leader struggling with boredom. Nothing to do but look out the window. And I want to tell you, you used to say all the time, you know, uh, they said a, um, an idle mind is the devil's what? Workshop. Bored guy sitting around in trouble. 
David's um, outcomes are predictable. And I want to show you four reasons why they were. David's predictable outcome, because of his blindness, was number one, abuse of others. That's predictable. When you do this, when you walk down this path, eventually, at some point, you abuse other people. Number two, please notice embarrassment is, a, is an outcome of it. You end up, at some point, being embarrassed. David, for one year, no one said anything. For one year. For one year, she has the baby, and, all, and no one says a thing. And finally, there was a guy who comes by as a prophet. And he spoke to David in front of everybody. He said, hey, David, you know, there was this guy. He had a whole bunch of flocks and sheep. And there was this one guy who had only one. He said, this one lamb that grew up with him, they were close. Now, here's what the prophet's doing. He's trying to show you the relationship between Bathsheba and her husband who was killed. They grew up together. They were young. And this one guy come and he, he came and he took the one little ewe lamb from that, from that man and he, he slaughtered it. Notice the description of what this did to her. This slaughtered her dreams. She and Uriah never had any children. The man she married, the man she loved, he slaughtered her dreams. It's amazing how one person can do that, can just absolutely take away everything you ever dreamed. And then he sits there and he said, not only did he kill the lamb, he ate it. He said he, he ate it for him. He took it for himself. And David was so furious. Catch this now, a year later, he forgot. Amazing how you could forget what you did. Come to church, get all saved and Holy Spirit filled and all that stuff, and you forget what you did. You forget your journey. You forget the mistakes you've made. He's mad. This guy, tell me who he is. We're gonna, I'm going to kill him. And he looks at David and says the most profound words, thou art the man. Wow. That was amazing. Let me freeze the story. I'll come back to it later. What an embarrassing moment. That's the goal. I want you to just look in the mirror and be ashamed. Bedroom blindness, that's exactly the goal. How could this be love? This is not love. This is, this is the path that leads to embarrassment. And in this case, loss of life. That's, that's the reason why he doesn't want you here, because it can cause this kind of consequence. And then, lastly, family infection. You'll see in our study next week how it rolls down to your kids and family. It's amazing. Now, what potentially caused all of this? I gave you seven quick reasons. Number one, please with me, repeat with me, please say, early access and addiction. Come on, say it. Early access and addiction. One of the pastors, we, I did what we call a, a sermon review, and one of the pastors sent back a note. He read my sermon notes, and he said, Pastor, he said, I mean, I read your notes, and I, I, I thought about how David was um, really fine at 17 when he slew Goliath. He slew Goliath. He was 17 years old. Then, as he became more successful in his mid-20s, now he's getting all these wives. By 30, he's got three wives. The more successful he became, the more out of control he became. I thought, what a great insight. Is that you? The more you have, the more opportunity you have, the more excuses, the more time you have, the more control you have, the more access. You're not really focusing anymore on, on, on helping. You don't even see the danger and the abuse you're causing. Y your whole life is kind of jumping around in this land of, of access. You ever thought about this? You're sitting there on the Internet and you're watching this stuff and you're... You're just Googling for an hour or two at somebody that's just obviously bedroom blind. These people are all obviously bedroom blind, and, and you're watching all this pornography and all this stuff, and you never thought, man, what if that was my daughter? Would that be, a, that'd be terrible? Oh, that's terrible, Pastor. How could you say that? Well, please, that's somebody's kid. 
And you participate, you pay for it, you help fund this blindness. It's amazing, isn't it? Early access and addiction. Then notice another thing that potentially caused us was how he managed his time, how he managed his relationships, how he managed his appetites, how he responded to advice. No one could talk to him. Number six, how he was able to silence those around him. So number one, early access. Number two, how he managed his time. Number three, how he managed his relationships. Number four, how he managed his appetites. Number five, how he responded to advice the guy tried to tell him. That's Eliam's daughter. Number six, how he was able to silence those around him. Go get her for me. Nobody could stop him. I've seen that a lot. Now, this, let me say something about pastors. That's what I've seen. Nobody can tell you. Nobody can tell you. You're the man of God. Nobody can stop you. I'm in this new uh, effort where we are pioneering churches with a group called uh, CAP. And in this group, Christian Alliance of Pastors, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, with, I'm helping interview potential pastors. And I did one a few weeks ago. It's a really great, great process. One of the great questions they ask in these studies of the guys that we want, that want to be candidates to be pastors is we ask them about how they deal with temptation. And in this study, it's really amazing. They have, to, they have to have about six people that are reference people who give their opinions. And so we compare their the opinion of the six people with the national average and then with your answer. And what's really amazing is to see the difference between the two. To see how sometimes you don't realize how you respond to temptation. My wife made a comment to me. It was so amazing when I was... <laughs> I've told this before, but she said um, when, I would, when we first got married, I'd go to the grocery store. I would always choose, there were six cashiers, I'd choose the finest one. <laughs> and then she said, you're going to choose the finest one and you're going to always speak to them. Well, how are you? And how is your day? And, and, I, and so later she teased me about it. She said, Temple, did you know that you choose the finest one? I said, what? You, what? What? Really? She said, yeah, I just, uh, you're fine. I just want you to know you do that. And I that's, thought I'd say it to you. And so I said, so you want me to choose the ugliest one? <laughs> that wasn't the point. Notice you. Just notice you. No one's saying that you did anything. She didn't accuse me of anything. She just said, notice you. You're drawn, you're pulled. And that, you, I wasn't doing anything. Because I don't need some of you to go home and say, all right, you better not choose that one. I know that. You better go to this ugly line over here, you know. <laughs> Poor guy goes to the line and says, all right, I'm not looking. This is a swipe. You know, this is me pay. I don't need you to become paranoid. That's not the point. And I think what's really interesting is I help mentor and lead pastors. I, I, a lot of them don't allow people to say anything to them. What I love about this process I'm in with mentoring pastors is these guys are saying, tell us, show us where our blind spots are before we're in charge of people. David had one year, one year and no consequence, and somehow that gave him this idea that it was, it was okay. But let me tell you one thing as I close, one thing that made David incredibly special. When he was confronted, when Nathan looked at him and said, thou art the man, David did something that made him stand out above Everybody else before him. Here's what he said. I have sinned. No excuses. No, I'm not going to blame anybody. And I didn't just sin against, against Bathsheba. I sinned against the Lord. This is between me and God. And I want to tell you, 
One of the things that will help you in fighting bedroom blindness is establish the conviction that this is not about somebody or my family. This is about me and God. Because God and I, we, I need to think about my relationship with God. I don't, I don't worry so much about, I mean, I do care about hurting Diane. I care about hurting my kids, my daughter. I care about embarrassing you. I, but, but that's not a good enough reason. In my opinion, it's just not. It's not enough to stop you. What really stops you in your tracks is when you think about my walk with God. If God can't stop me, you surely can't. You want to be the you want to be a, you want to be the reason I don't, please. My wife told me one time. She says, you know, she says a lot of things to me, but she she can I be really transparent? No, no, I need to vote. Can I be really transparent? Yes. I need to see your hands. How many? Can I be really transparent? I'm going to tell you something good, okay? You ready? Watch. She looked at me. She says, Temple, I'm going to tell you something. Because I don't think certain ways. And guys generally don't think ways. Ladies, get this. She says, a woman would love to have a part-time relationship with you and would never tell. She'd keep your secret. And she says, you are so good. You are so smart. You could hide it. And you could afford it. That's what she told me. I would never know. And we just had this wonderful conversation about, because we're talking about leaders and failure and moral failures. And she said, that's common. And what's really interesting, in this room, somebody, somebody watching and listening to me now, you're that person keeping a secret. And, and, and you haven't thought about how blind you are. You've justified it with all kinds of reasonings. When she said that to me, it touched me because she really looked at me and, and I, I could never stop you. I don't have enough beauty, enough cute, enough anything. This is between you and God. And that's what some women don't get. You think it's your fault all the time because he wants to blame you for his blindness? No, David said, it's not about me. It's between me and God first. And that's where, that's where you need to start. Stop making this about her. Well, if she was more attentive, she can jump across the room. She can, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're blind, you're blind. And that's the part where you pause in your life and learn from David. Next week, we talk about passing bedroom blindness to your children. It's going to be an amazing study. It's going to be one I'm going to show you some keys to help you be free. If you're bedroom blind, let me give you a couple of thoughts that you can take home with you. You ready? Go to Jesus and say, here's where I am. And the Bible said there's therefore no guilt or condemnation in Christ. Once you come to Christ and lay it down, it's over. You don't have to carry this in your heart one more day. I gave you a couple of things to read there. 2 Samuel chapter 13, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. That's your homework. Read that about the children's part of this. Then the following week, I'm going to show you what I believe um, the Bible says about how to be better. And I'm also going to show you uh, which blindness can be the worst. Now, that sermon is going to surprise you because some people want to make one blindness worse than the others. And you'll see what I'm going to say about that in the last part of the study. Have you enjoyed this? I hope it's helped you. Father, I thank you for your people today. I thank you for the weight of this discussion. It is weighty. It's emotional. 
but it's not designed to make people feel guilty. The Bible said you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Heal today. Heal today the abused. Heal today the Bathsheba's in the room. Heal today those who have been in power and they've had advantage and they've abused it. Heal today those who've kept the secrets. They've been the secret. May they say, I need to come out of the shadows and not be blind any longer. This is not love. This is being lost. I would not want anybody to do what I'm doing to them. I would not want to, I would not want to be in love with a man who had someone like me or a woman. I would not want my wife to have someone like me. I would want my wife to be faithful. I want my husband to be faithful. So, Father, I pray for those who've been a part to this, that they would say, no more. No more. This is a blindness that does not lead to a good place. This is not the best plan for me. I need a love that's reliable, holy, and consistent. Not because of them, but because of the Lord. My walk with God. I need to look in the mirror and be happy with me. And so, God, I pray for people today to leave this room free. I pray for them to leave this room empowered. Those who have been good at hiding it, may today be the day they get healed. It's not so much that I need to get up and tell everybody all my sins and lay them all out for everybody because everybody can't handle my failures. But it is about me being honest before God. Nathan would have never had to say this to David in public if he had said it to himself in private. Sometimes God's waiting for you to say to yourself in private, you are out of line. You are blind and you need to let God help you see. And sometimes, Lord, if we can admit that in private, there is no public dynamic. You heal us. And there are people in this room who that would be true. They were blind, but they changed. And no one knows today of that dark season in their life. Grace has covered it for years. But Jesus, there are people in this room who need to hear this. There are people listening to this video right now, listening to this tape online. There are people saying, this, I need to hear this. So I want to pray a prayer. Hands lifted. Everybody lift those hands high. Jesus, we speak forgiveness, healing, washing, purging. Brand new beginning for people for who are ashamed of their past blindness. We pray that there'd be a washing of the word of God in their hearts today. And they would leave this place changed. Never the same never the same and I thank you for your grace that has cleansed all of us all of us who've been victims of being bedroom blind Lord thank you for your grace today and for giving us another chance you thought we were worthy to die for <laughs> you cleaned us up because you thought we were worth it and so we thank you for that today in Jesus name Hands down for just a moment, one more prayer. Father, I pray for people today who come to this service and they have three things on their minds. One, some have never given their lives to Jesus. They've never said, Jesus saved me. The word salvation means to deliver. They've never been delivered. They've never said, I need God in my life. I pray for those people. 
I pray for those who walk with God for a long time, but then they got off track and they need to rededicate their lives. They are not walking with God, but they need to walk with God. May this be a moment that they find healing and blessing. I declare by faith in Jesus' name, this will be a time of deliverance for them. I also pray, Father, for those, those who, are, who need a membership. They need a place to be a part of. Their placement in their life is wrong. They need to come to this place or a place like this and grow. And I pray that this would be a moment of healing for them because they need to be a member of this church or a member of a church like this or someplace they can learn and grow. We speak blessing to them in this time. And may that be, I pray, something they'd consider in Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. In your seat back packet, I want to offer you something.